And welcome back to the Arm Barn Podcast. I'm Matt Ferreira. And I'm Ezra. And we're just going to hop right into it. Tons of baseball news this week, actually. Uh, first thing that is probably the most important right now is the lockout. They are going to meet on Monday again, and the Players Association is going to counter-offer what the MLB offered on Thursday. Yeah, and after Thursday's meeting, Ken Rosenthal spoke about the current state of the lockout. He was pretty much bashing his uh, firer in Rob Manfred by saying that, quote, this is not at the moment of both sides discussion. Rosenthal's pretty much just saying the MLB doesn't seem to be listening to anything the MLBPA wants. And to be honest, that doesn't surprise me. And Matt, I'm pretty sure it doesn't surprise you because Rob Manfred is stubborn and he will not stop until he gets what he wants, or at least gets some of what he wants. What he wants is a lot. And I feel like the MLBPA's asking price isn't that high. So we'll see how that goes. The new, the next meeting being Monday in a couple of, in a few days, we'll see how that goes. But there's just a lot of variables that we of course know are going to change and Rob Manfred's going to sit in his iron throne and pretend that he rules the world. Yeah. And like we said last episode, they met on thir- last Thursday and it wasn't even, they weren't even close to a deal. The MLB offered and MLBPA was just surprised by the lack of compromise in anything. A so. lot of, a lot of guys were also tweeting out. I know a lot of players were saying, we just want baseball. So give it to us. And I know there are a lot of guys free agents that are really suffering because of it. And speaking of those free agents, we do have Carlos Correa still in the free agency pool. And it came out uh, just a couple days ago that he was looking pre-lockout for 330 mil to 350 million. If he got over the 341 million threshold, it would make him the highest paid shortstop over Lindor. Corey Seager recently, before the lockout signed with the Rangers for 325 million. So we're assuming it'll be in the over 325 range. And we've spoken on past episodes about the comparison between Seeger and Correa. And I think Correa's asking for a lot of money. It's $330 million. It's nothing to scoff at. But honestly, I don't think he deserves as much as Corey Seeger. I think that defensively it's he's got it there. I think they should have the same contract. I think they're such similar players and they have such similar impact that either or, I mean, 330 million, 5 million more than Seager. And honestly, both of them deserve to get paid more than Lindor after last season. So we'll see how that goes. And Correa also did sign with the man, the myth, the legend, Scott Boris to be his new agent to join quite an illustrious list of clients for Boris. I mean, go on any sort of website and you see Scherzer, Soto, Xander Bogarts, Bryce Harper, Corey Seager, Chris Bryant, just to name a few, even Garrett Cole, JD Martinez, Cody Bellinger. All of these guys are with Boris. And there's a reason that everybody goes to Scott Boris because he's really good at his job. Yeah, seeing that Correa went to Boris means he's gonna get most likely gonna get that three thirty million minimum that he asked for. 
it's going to be interesting to see if he, how much above that he gets. Um, he did say he wanted, like, like Ezra said, he wanted between the 330 and 350 range. I think the slight advantage he has over Seager's how healthy he's been the last few years with Seager getting hurt a lot, actually. And he had a few good playoff runs, but I think Correa still has a little bit more of postseason experience than Seager. But it's interesting to see how much Correa will get. And another guy that recently just signed, or a few guys that recently just signed with Boris this offseason too, Jonathan India, the reigning NL Rookie of the Year, recently signed with Boris. And White Sox right-hander Dylan Cease switched over to Scott Boris for contract negotiations. Yeah, so obviously this is being spurred on by the lockout. The longer this lasts, the more likely guys are going to be to sign with Boris and to go to these big agencies. Because when you can't make your money, you want to make sure that when you can make your money, you have somebody that knows what he's doing to get you that money. And that's what these guys are doing. I know India, not much needs to be said. He was that out of the year. Of course, he's a fantastic ball player. But Dylan Cease, not a name to scoff at. He has some funk and junk in his repertoire. And one of, one of the most fun pitchers, I think, to watch that not a lot of people know. Obviously, the most fun is like DeGrom. But Cease is one of those underrated names, underrated arms that is, I think could break out pretty soon especially in that loaded White Sox pen and rotation that could really help him out. Yeah. He was one of the guys in the back end of that White Sox rotation last year, but he was pretty good. He had made 32 starts, 165 innings pitch, but he had 226 strikeouts, big strikeout guy. He is, he will give up a few long balls. He gave up 20 last year. But if he continues to strike out people at the pace he is and he gets a few more outs here and there, like a little lucky outs, to get a little, little more defense back there, and he could be one of the best pitchers in the game. Yeah, for sure. And going back to Jonathan India, one of, one of our favorite NL rookies from last year, naturally he did win the Rookie of the Year. Very talented guy, very happy to just be playing the game he's he very clearly understands that it is in fact a game and it's just fun to see that i know that recently a video of him at the Bengals tailgate just went viral and it just really showed how amazing of a dude he really is i know matt has a lot more on that so i'll cut myself off here yeah, so the full story was he was uh, india was going to the Bengals game he was at a tailgate and a fan of his with autism actually saw him and walked up to him and India was talking to him for a little bit and he ended up in the video of him is him finding the fans Instagram and following him on Instagram and giving him some positive words and it was just a heartwarming story all around yeah it was nice to see guys going out in the community not just because they need to just being decent human beings and Jonathan India is really exemplifying that and you just gotta love to see it from a fan standpoint especially as a Cincinnati fan, if you are, that's just got to be a great look for you guys. And honestly, can't wait to see what Jonathan India does with the rest of his career because year one was pretty fantastic. Yeah, definitely a young player I've been watching for a while. And just to see him be a good guy in general always makes him a better player in like your head and like how you always want to watch him more because you know he's a good guy. Exactly. It's easy to cheer for a good guy. And that's what India's really shown that he is. 
And sticking with the theme of young players, lots of international deals went through over the time between our last episode. The Yankees law uh, launched a lot of money into international prospects. They ended up signing the number one international prospect, uh, Roderick Arias, I believe is how you pronounce it, through $4 million at him. That's a big international deal. I know, naturally, I know the Orioles signed 26 different international players, which was huge considering the Orioles have no have have notoriously been a no-show in international signings. So that's nice for me and my fellow Oriole fans to see. But back to Arias, Matt, I know you have a little bit more on him. Yeah, so the Yankees ended up throwing $4 million at him, like Ezra said. And in total, they gave up $5 million to all their prospects. They didn't give one other prospect over 300000 for a signing bonus, which I found interesting that they pretty much put all their eggs in one basket with Arias signing there. He's a shortstop with a plus defensive uh, output, and he's got a strong arm that he just, with quick hands, he throws it smoothly. He seems like a pretty fast guy, and he just, he has above average hit tool. It's just going to see if he can end up gaining some muscle and gaining some power to go on with this swing. And we got to keep in mind that all of these guys are very young. There was only one player in the Orioles signing list that I saw that was born before me. I'm, I was born in 2002 and half of the signees were born in 2004, 2005. And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, these guys are young. There was one guy who I believe was 22 years old that the Orioles signed out of the international pool. So there's a lot of room for these guys to grow, a lot of room to put on muscle and to make their, to more fine, fine tune their tools. So we'll see how all of those go. And there's a lot of guys to watch there for every organization, really. It was a very active international signing, signing period this year. And with other international prospects, some big names that a lot of you will recognize, um, Elian Soto, the younger brother of Juan Soto signed with the Nationals. And a lot of people are saying that he might be better than Juan Soto. That might be going a little far, considering Juan Soto might have the best eye in baseball and have the best plate discipline. So his brother is also in the organization now. He's got a very smooth swing. I know a lot of us have seen that swing going all over social media recently. But another big NL East name Ronald Acuna's younger brother, Brian, is signed with the Blue Jays. And I actually have a video of Brian Acuna hitting, and it's eerily similar to Ronald. It's very impressive, very smooth swing, another sweet swing in righty that is very interesting to see how he'll do in the Blue Jays organization. I know they have a middle brother who's also in a minor league system. I don't remember which one off the top of my head, but it's just cool to see these, these lines of, of siblings being able to play at least in the minor leagues and most likely make it to the major leagues at some point. These guys are very young. Like I said, Brian Acuna is only 16. So he's got a few years to make it through the ranks of the minor leagues to the majors, and I fully expect him to. 
Yeah, I saw a video of uh, Soto's brother, and his swing just looked so effortless, and it was flying off his bat. It was quite amazing to watch. I was watching it probably for it was probably a ten second video, and I watched it on five minutes for on loop. It was just mesmerizing. It's it's beautiful to watch, really. Yeah, and continuing with uh, international prospects, one thing I noticed was the Angels continued to sign pitching. They before the lockout they signed uh lorenzen they signed syndergaard they got aaron loop and re-signed rasiel iglesias and they drafted 20 pitchers and 20 picks in the mlb draft and then they came out and signed seven more pitchers out of the international pool with four lefties and three righties and it's just self-awareness from the angels at this point that they're struggling with pitching i mean they have rendon Trout, obviously, Otani and the lineup complemented by Walsh and Stassi. Don't forget about David Fletcher. Gotta love David Fletcher. But they obviously are shelling out a lot of money to these players, and they're looking for, I would say, cheaper routes to go than just signing big-name pitchers, which I find interesting. Yeah, and it's just a trend for them at this point. I know that Joe Madden notices the issue that they have. I it's very clear in how they're going with all of their picks. I wouldn't be surprised to see them even sign a few more pitchers by the time the lockout's over. I could definitely see them signing some big name guys. Honestly, I might be a little outlandish, but even talking to a Kershaw type, that would be really interesting to see if they go that route to at least get a very solid ace at the top of that staff could also see some other big name starting pitchers, but staying with the international pool, a story that I found really interesting is the Cubs signed Adan Sanchez, a Panamanian catcher. He's 16 years old. And a few years ago, he was playing in the little league world series. And a lot of these guys were, but what's really interesting to me is the man calling of the game when Adon Sanchez hit a walk-off home run was Cubs manager David Ross. So clearly Ross liked what he saw in, in Sanchez. And I just think that's a really funny story to see that come full circle. And again, can't wait to see what the kids do in the future. Yeah, and I wanted to make a point. It's a guy that came out of the international pool a while ago, uh, Signed for $72 million for the Red Sox a while ago, Rusne Castillo. He never really got a chance in Boston um, with Mookie Betts, Jackie Bradley, and Ben Attendee coming up. But he recently signed a minor league deal with the Nationals. He is 34 years old now, but it's ha- I'm happy to see the pride of Pawtucket get another chance. In his last year with the Pawtucket Red Sox, he hit 278 with 17 home runs. So he wasn't a bad player in AAA, which – Obviously, it doesn't directly translate to the big leagues, but if he can like keep that production up into the big leagues, I feel like he will be solid for the Nationals. Yeah, we were actually talking about this the other day, Matt. I don't really remember why it came up, but we were talking about Rizan Castillo and how the Sox shelled out some money for him. And it really, I, I didn't say that, I wasn't saying that he was unworthy of all of the money that he was getting. I was just... I said it was a bad signing because it didn't work out. And I, I'm not, not going to eat my words because naturally it didn't work out. 
but I do agree with you. He deserves another chance. That outfield for the Sox was so good for so long. And he, I, I remember maybe in the minors, they tried to move Castillo to like first base and it just didn't work. Yeah. So getting the outfield being so crowded definitely worked against him. Yeah. His career in the big leagues, he only had uh, 83 hits, hit 262, seven homers, seven stolen bases, 35 RBIs. And he wasn't a terrible hitter, but he wasn't a great one, but he was an average hitter. And like, even when he got sent down to Pawtucket in 2019, he hit, or sorry, 2018, rather, he hit 320 in Pawtucket in 117 games. And the year before he had hit 314. So like, he was a really good player in Pawtucket. And I just always thought he should get another chance. But obviously with the Red Sox, it was tough with Mookie, like I said, Mookie Betts, Bradley and Ben Tendi. And then obviously we got Chris Young and Brock Holt that made some starts out there, but I'm happy that he got another chance. I think a lot of baseball purists are just happy that he got another chance. Sticking with the theme of the AAA, the Astros AAA affiliate, the Sugarland Skeeters, changed their name to one of my personal favorite minor league names now, the Sugarland Space Cowboys. I love the minor leagues for this. I mean, the names are fantastic. They're so good. We have sod, we have sod poodles. We have space cowboys. There are so many good names and I just love the branding that the minor league does. And that's all I really have to say. It's just a fun little name change that I thought I should let see the light of day because who doesn't want to play for a team called the Space Cowboys? Yeah, minor league teams definitely have the best names and the best logos. My, I have a Montgomery Biscuits hat and a Paw Sox hat with the bear. I think they're some of the most entertaining logos and names in sports. They just have fun with it. Rumble Ponies is another example of a good name. There's just a lot in the branding that they do with it. They have fun colors. They're not sticking with just black and another color. They're going navy blue and pink or neon greens or like the savannah bananas do and wear kilts you know there's so much fun that's had outside of the mlb and it's kind of annoying that the fun doesn't really translate up there with guys like you know tony larusa telling your mean not to hit an absolute tank it is what it is but I just want to see some more, some of this fun that we see at the lower levels translate and actually be praised instead of hated on, really, because it's a game after all. I've said I say it a lot and I'll say it again. It's a game. These guys are getting paid a lot of money to play a game that we all love to play as kids. So why not let them have fun? Yeah, and giving a the pot of uh, call up back to the majors. There was a new story about the A's new stadium. And the Oakland City Planning Commission voted unanimously to recommend certification of the 3,500-page environmental impact report. It will go to vote by Oakland City Council as soon as mid-February. The A's stadium proposal includes a 35,000-seat ballpark near the bay with up to 3,000 condos, 1.5 million square feet of office space, 200,000 square feet of retail space, a performance center with a capacity of 3,500, a 400-room hotel, and 18 acres of publicly available outdoor space. Even if improved, a, approved, A's are months, if not years, away from having their new stadium. 
and they're not out on Las Vegas. They actually made an offer on a piece of land. And Vegas has its pros and cons, but I wanted to jump into the stadium first. Uh, I, I was really interested in the aspects of the stadium. Uh, 3,500 seats, which is a relatively small ballpark. Fenway's around that size and built in 1912. It was, it's one of the smaller parks today. But 400-room hotel kind of reminds me of the Rogers Center in Toronto. And 18 acres of publicly available outdoor space blew my mind. Yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of land. And honestly, no offense to the A's, but they don't need a ton of seats. The Coliseum doesn't get filled up even when they're in the playoffs making a run. So downsizing the amount of seats and upgrading all of the other amenities, honestly, is a smart move for them. Obviously, if they move to Las Vegas, we'll see how that would change everything. But I don't really love that. But back back to the stadium, it's just it's just good to see that they realize there's an issue and that they want to change it. Yeah, and some of the pros and cons that they stated of Las Vegas was if they don't move, it opens up another spot because for MLB expansion, if they plan to go to 32 teams, but a pro would obviously be a new fan base with more fans. Yeah, and speaking of very few fans... Let's talk about the Rays. This is intriguing to me, for sure. Um, I'm sure saw a bunch of you saw it because it was everywhere on social media, but the Rays planned for the half-season spend in Montreal got rejected by the MLB. Um, this is interesting because Montreal is also one of the sites that they're looking at for expansion, which is one of the reasons why I think the Rays may have been rejected. Yeah, and... It's just a weird idea. I, I know that we've seen it in the past in other sports where teams play half their season or even a full season in a different place and then come back. But that's normally in the wake of unfortunate natural disasters. And the Rays doing a half and half season, I never really liked the idea of, I think they should just move to Montreal outright. I don't think that Tampa is a great place for them to be. It's not a baseball town. They're not even in Tampa. They're in St. Yeah, Pete. I think they should move to Tampa outright. <laughs> they should move somewhere outright and not do this half season because it just wouldn't, it wouldn't feel right to do that. At least in my mind, I think moving to Montreal would be interesting because it would probably have to shake up the divisions because you're not going to have two AL East teams, both in Canada both so close to each other, it just wouldn't make any sense. It's like if the Mets and the Yankees were in the same division. So it would be interesting to see if they did move to Montreal, if they maybe moved to the NL East and the NL East shakes up a little bit, maybe puts the, I don't even know what they would do, but move the Marlins to the AL East maybe? Maybe. Another Florida team? Honestly, that could work. Another thing could be instead of, moving the Rays to Montreal, move them somewhere else, move them somewhere in more central Canada. I know that it would be a little weird to have them all the way on the, both of the Canadian teams on the east side of Canada, maybe move them to the west, maybe to Vancouver. That would be interesting. Put them in the NL West and maybe move the Rockies to the the NL Central and shift that up a little bit. That could all be very interesting. Maybe move the Reds into the AL East or something. Just a couple of options that I was that I thought of 
But speaking of moving teams all over the place, Matt, I know you mentioned this earlier that Montreal was one of the top expansion spots for the MLB, but also Nashville, which interests me because I think that would be amazing. I'm not a huge fan of expansion right now. I think that there's enough issues internally with the MLB that maybe expanding right now isn't the best idea. But if somebody's going to move, uh, if somebody's going to create a franchise for the MLB, I honestly think that Nashville would be a great spot for it. There's not a ton of baseball teams near Nashville. I know that the Reds are the closest, but other than that, there's no teams in the Carolinas. There's no team in Alabama. There's the Braves, I guess. There's no team in Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas. So it would just be cool to have a team there. I think that it's a big sports town. I've been to Nashville only once, but there's sports bars everywhere. So I think that it would be a welcome addition to the Titans and the Preds. Yeah, I definitely think Nashville's an up-and-coming city. We've seen how Vanderbilt's been treated out there. I think that an MLB team would be amazing. I know that Nashville itself has been trying to get a team out there for a while. Um, I know they have, I believe it's a minor league team. It might be an independent ball league team, the Nashville Stars. And I know they get a lot of fans and stuff like that. So I'd love to see an MLB team out there. I think Montreal, like you said, is interesting. I'd rather see a team in like Winnipeg or Edmonton. Um, I've seen those cities embrace teams with the Jets and the Oilers and hockey. So I think it would be interesting to get a baseball team up in central Canada. And actually going back to what I was saying about Vancouver, another thing that I think would be interesting is to put a team closer to the Mariners because year in, year out, we hear a lot about how the Mariners have to travel way more than any other team in the league. And by putting another team out there, it would just make it so that not only teams playing the Mariners would have to deal with that issue of travel. So it's just another interesting thing to consider when thinking of either expanding or moving teams. And it's just, it'll just be fun to see what happens. I know the Rays probably won't end up doing anything because we've been talking about moving them since pretty much they started to get good again. And Nashville, though, very cool. If we're going to expand, which I don't think we should, but I think that the MLB would find a really nice home in Nashville. Yeah, we going forward, we also had a bunch of retirements, or a few actually, I shouldn't say a bunch, but uh, Melky Cabrera announced his retirement. I know a lot of people know him with the Yankees uh, for winning that World Series there. He was also an all-star in San Francisco, but 144 career homers, 1,900 hits, a 285 batting average, 800 RBIs, 100 stolen bases. He had a few good years with the White Sox as well. I, I think he was just one of those players that I watched as a kid at least, and I think it's not – it's one of those players that it hits home when he retires. It makes me feel old. Yeah, I remember the entirety of that Melky saga when it comes to his PD usage and jumping around, being a one-year a one-year wonder, quote unquote. Obviously, he was a pretty good player for most of his career, but going to one All-Star game and winning the All-Star game MVP when, when he was with the Giants, he was always talked about in the early season as a a, a guy that would jump up at the beginning of the season and start out really well, ended up in the MVP conversation a few times in his career. And it's just a great career, obviously marred by a little bit of the PED controversy, but it's like you said, Matt, it makes me feel old when I see guys 
like Malky retiring. And another retirement that came out just a couple of days ago also was Francisco Liriano. One of my, my first, one of my first memories with baseball video games was MLB 2K on the DS. And I hated playing against Francisco Liriano on that game because he was just filthy. He, he was a lefty with a nasty hook and it always scared me whenever it came up. Obviously I was a child, so I wasn't very good at the game either, but it was just, again, like with Malky, it makes me feel old when he retires because it was a part of my childhood to hate playing against Liriano. And naturally, not only in the video games, he was a great pitcher in the league and just, you know, got to give him a shout out after not playing the past few years, but finally announcing his retirement and kudos on a great career. Yeah, he last played for Pittsburgh in 2019. He played with the Twins, the Pirates. He went up north to the Blue Jays, he played with the Tigers, Astros for a year. And then finish it off in Chicago. He was an all-star in Minnesota. 112 career wins, 415 ERA, a career save, which is interesting. Uh, exactly 300 games started, 1,813 innings pitched with 1,815 strikeouts, and just a great career by Liriano. Yeah, and it begs the question if they'll get any Hall of Fame votes, really. I don't think they'll get in but I think Melky will probably sneak in a couple of votes I'm not totally sure about Liriano but speaking of the Hall of Fame in four days the votes are announced and they go public so one last time before they do me and Matt decided it would be probably beneficial for everybody if we talked about the voting and the vote tracker that we have courtesy of Mr. Tibbs. Yeah, so this tracker has 83% of the ballots. Um, and just recapping, it's 75% to get uh, of votes to get into the Hall of Fame. And if you don't get up to 5%, you're off of next year's ballot. Now, there's a bunch of guys that will not make the Hall of Fame this year. We can run through a few of them, of the, of the notable names. Jeff Kent will not make it in, which I know a lot of people are unhappy about. Guys like Bobby Abreu won't get in, Vizquel won't get in, and other guys like that we had on our ballots during our Hall of Fame episode, like Jimmy Rollins won't get in, Manny Ramirez won't get in, guy and Tory Hunter also will not get in and there's a bunch of guys actually teetering on missing the ballot next year there's only two guys with one vote Teixeira and Papelbon they would need 19 of the remaining votes from on of the remaining votes that haven't been counted on the tracker to get in which seems relatively unlikely other guys that are teetering on that edge would be Ryan Howard, who only has three votes so far. He would need 17. So would Tory Hunter to stay on the ballot for next year. Joe Nathan will need 16. Tim Lincecum and Tim Hudson will need 14 and 15 each. Probably not going to happen. Then there's a lot of guys who are pretty much guaranteed to get in. I know that there's no guarantees with this because there's still a fair few votes that haven't been counted but like ortiz clemens bonds they're all pretty much 
I know I know Clemens is pretty close. Yeah, I actually want to correct myself real quick because I was on um, I was looking at previous ballots earlier and the page didn't switch back. But it's actually we know forty four point six percent of ballots, but all of everything Ezra just said is still the same. Um, but yeah, Ortiz looks like he's pretty primed to get in, sitting at eighty four percent right now. Clemens and Bonds are at seventy six and seventy seven respectfully. I I think they're all going to get all those three. I think they're going to get in. And it honestly looks like those are the only three that are going to get in this, this time round. I know I'll say it in every episode that we talk about the hall of fame, but Todd Helton should get in. He needs 89% of the remaining votes. So probably won't this year. He's got six more years on the ballot. I think he should get in another guy that I think should also get in who needs 76% of the remaining votes is Billy Wagner, who only has 48 but really, there's only a couple of guys that are teetering on the edge of getting in to the Hall of Fame. Scott Rowland is at just about 70% of the votes. He would need 79% of the remaining votes to get in, which is interesting. That would be that I think that would be deserved. Another guy, Kurt Schilling, who was on his last year on the ballot. So this is his last ditch effort. He's only at 60%, so it seems unlikely because he'd need 87% of the votes to get in. But there's not a lot to really debate here on who we think will is close that will get in or not, because most of these votes are pretty standard. Yeah, I'm interested with Bonds and Clemens specifically because of their known PED usage. And they're sitting right now, like I said, 77, 76%. I wonder how many of people who have already voted didn't release their val- uh, ballot on social media or um, anonymously for scrutiny reasons and not voting for them. Yeah. So if we look at last year's ballots with, with Clemens and with Bonds, they were sitting at 66 and 65% of the ballots. So they gained a pretty significant amount this year. Obviously we don't know all of the ballots, but both of them gained at least two votes of the known ballots so far. So I'm assuming that will probably continue to increase. And looking at net votes gained, there's a few guys that really gained some traction in the past year. Todd Helton got 12 more votes than he did last year. He did also lose five votes, but he gained 17. So in total, 12. Another guy that gained 12 votes from last year's ballot is Scott Rowland, which is interesting to me. And then another weird one, really, is that Billy Wagner also gained 10. I think he's well-deserving of it. But right next to him on the ballot is due to alphabetizing is Omar Vizquel, who lost 45 votes from last year's ballot. And I think we all know why I don't think I really need to go over any of that. But it's just crazy to see how much impact non-baseball things have on the Hall of Fame voting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Kurt Schilling is a prime factor that he had 71% last year and Currently, he's sitting at 60%. We all know a lot about Kurt Schilling and his social media and what he says and does. So it's interesting to see how it's 
kind of sh shaded away from a baseball museum, so to say. Yeah, there's, it's becoming more like, I know you love to say, Matt, the good guy. It's not a good guy museum, it's a baseball museum. And I mean, you're right. It some of these guys, even though they're not the greatest people, they were great ball players, and we got to at least respect that. And going back to a name that has been eliminated from the ballot thus far, sitting very close to that five percent mark is is no pun intended, Mark Burley. Now, I didn't have him on my ballot when we voted earlier, but I just saw this post the other day on MLB Network that compared Mark Burley to another Hall of Fame pitcher. And that's Tom Glavin. Now, obviously these aren't the only stats that matter, but 200 plus inning seasons, Burley and Glavin have the same amount. While Burley played 15 years, Tom Glavin played 20. And we have a some other important stats on the MLB Network post. The Ks per nine are very similar. Both have one World Series title. Their ERA pluses have one point in difference. Burley is a 117 and Glavin's a 118. Another stat that they put on the post was no hitters. I know we know Burley has the perfect game under his belt, but he also has another no hitter, giving him two over Glavin's zero. And just looking at the stats, obviously the 13 point drop in war is significant, but Burley still had a 60 war over his career, which is pretty good. I think it's a pretty hall of fame level level war. The ERA plus, like I said, is very similar. The fielding independent pitching is also very similar. Obviously Glavin is edging a little ahead in that category, but Burley's whip better than Glavin's over his career. The home runs per nine, very similar, but Burley walked less hitters per nine. He, his strikeout to walk ratio was significantly better at 2.55 against Glavin's 1.74. So it, I know that it's really a lot of Glavin's, a lot of people say that Glavin is undeserving of being in the Hall of Fame considering his numbers. I mean, you don't normally look at a guy with a 3-5 ERA and say, oh, Hall of Famer. You don't really see that a ton. Obviously, the complete game shutouts are a big part of Glavin's campaign. The 56 complete games in his career with 25 shutouts is really impressive. But I think that if Glavin's in, I think that considering Mark Burley has such similar stats, I feel like it's reasonable to make the case that he should be in as well. Yeah, there's definitely an argument for him. I mean, I remember watching him. I didn't watch him mainly on the Blue Jays, actually, in that uh, those few postseason runs they had. But he definitely has an argument to get in. The perfect game definitely helps. And the two no-hitters shows – or the no-hitter on top of that shows that he wasn't like a one-hit wonder like some of the other pitchers we've seen. He definitely has been a good pitcher over his career, and there's definitely an argument for him to get in. Yeah, and speaking of arguments to get in, I saw this on the Game Day MLB's Instagram page, so shout out to them. And it asks the question, is Matt Holliday a Hall of Famer? Now, it's not a guy that you would think of right away as a Hall of Famer. He was never the biggest name on any of the teams he played on. When he was with the Rockies, it was Todd Helton. He was with the Cardinals. There was Wayne Wright, Chris Carpenter, Yadi Molina. 
And so he was always a little bit overshadowed. But if you look at his numbers over his career, he did have 316 career home runs, which isn't a ton, but he was never the biggest power hitter. He had a career average of just under 300 in his 15-year career. He had seven all-star games, a World Series title in 2011, and NLCS MVP in that run as well. He was a Silver Slugger winner four times, won a batting title in his career in 2007 with the Rockies. He finished second in MVP voting that year. He finished in the top 20 a few more times over the course of his career. And he's just an all-around great player. I think that we all know him pretty well at our age. He was a very big name for, for all of us college-age kids when we were growing up. The 2,000-plus hits in his career is also a big case. Now, I won't say that I would vote for him to get into the Hall right now, but I think there's a case that could be made. He has very good numbers. He was a very consistent player over the course of his career. He hit 283 in his last season in the, in the big leagues. Obviously, it wasn't a full season, but in 2015, he was hitting 280 in his fourth to last year in the league. He was an all-star that year at the age of 35. I just think it's interesting, the case to make. And I just wanted to give a quick little shout out mostly for the impressive career that he did have and that he should be considered more of a Hall of Fame, maybe not worthy, but worthy of being in that conversation player. Yeah, one thing I love about baseball reference is they have a lot of stats that are very unnecessary, but I use them a lot. And one of them is similarity scores. And they have some like people that he is a similar player to. And the most similar for him were Moises Alou, Maglio Ordonez, Will Clark, like a bunch of players that were on the brink of making the Hall of Fame. And they do it by age two. And his age 31 and 32 season, he was most similar to Larry Walker, who is a Hall of Famer now. So definitely be interesting to see if he has a little more to push him over the edge compared to some of the players he was um, compared to by baseball reference. And he was a big part of a lot of postseason runs, obviously only the one world series title, but he made it to the world series with the Rockies was the MVP of the NLCS. He had the 2011 world series title with the Cardinals played very well in the NLCS that year hitting 435 in the six games he was a postseason performer for the most part in his career. There were a few off series, but it's just, it's just interesting to, to think of him as a possible Hall of Famer. And I just wanted to give that quick little shout and have a quick little conversation about it because conversations are always fun. Now on to our next part of the episode. We don't have a ton going on in baseball. So me and Matt decided why not do some simple, some simple things on the, on the pod. Now we're going to do some start bench cuts because everybody enjoys those. And because we are part of everybody, we're going to do some. Now we have one for outfield each. We have one each for infields and one each for pitchers. And I'll just get it started with my pitcher one because it includes a guy that you really you really love matt now my pitcher start bench cut for you is eduardo rodriguez aaron nola and mad bum so 
immediately my start bench cut comes to my head just by hearing those names. My start is going to be Aaron Nola. Um, Erod is really good. I think he had a down year last year coming off of the myocardialitis the from what he got from COVID and missing a full year. I think he performed pretty well. I think he's going to do great in Detroit. Actually, when he signed up to Detroit, I predicted a Cy Young for him. But until he completely proves it to me, I'm going to have to bench Erod, and I'm going to have to cut Bumgarner strictly because of his age. I think that's pretty reasonable. I mean, I when I was coming up with them, I did use baseball references, comparisons, and I just put together the past couple of seasons and compared them all between them. Nola is the youngest of the group, and Erod is the middle age, and Bumgarner is the oldest. But I was actually surprised to see how similar all of their numbers were the past couple of years. So I figured that it would be fun. I actually think that I would do the exact same thing in my star bench cut. So I'm not really surprised by your answers. And you want to you wanna hit me with one, Matt? Yeah, so I'll start off with my outfield one. I picked three players I thought were interesting and kind of similar. It is Alex Kirillov, Eddie Rosario, and Alex Verdugo. So the first thing that I got to say is Eddie Rosario just went insane in the postseason to help with that World Series run for the Braves. So purely off of that, I'm going to start him. I think that if he can keep up that level of production, at least to some extent, he's just going to be fantastic. I know he's a little older than the other two. Kirloff's a lot younger than those guys. And Verdugo is a household name in Boston. Everybody loves Doogie. So between the two of those, I feel it's pretty obvious. I think that it's just Verdugo is much more home is just a household name for a lot more people. So I'm going to have to cut Kirloff and I'm going to put Doogie on my bench. No offense to Kirloff because he is shown up very much recently. So I'll give him his due, but he's going to have to get cut right now. And you went outfield. So I'll go outfield as well. I have a full NL central slate, which I didn't even realize at first. And that is Brian Reynolds from the Pirates, Harrison Bader, and Tyler O'Neill, both from the Cardinals. So this one's going to be a little hard for me, but immediately I have to start Harrison Bader. Um, he's 27. He's a guy that like reminds me of Jackie Bradley Jr. because the strong defensive uh, output he puts in center field. And he really came into his home hitting-wise in this year in 2021 with 16 homers. Um, bench is tough. I want to go Brian Reynolds, but I don't know. I think I have to go Reynolds. He had a great season in Pittsburgh. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to go Reynolds. And you're going to cut the muscle man, Tyler O'Neill. Yeah, I don't want to, but I feel like Brian Reynolds just had a better year last year. And I, he's a, they're similar in age too. I just, I like Reynolds a little bit more. It's a lefty bat. Yeah. I'm going to have to cut Tyler O'Neill. I figured that one would be tough for you. 
So most definitely. Who are you going to hit me with pitcher and field here, Matt? I'm going to hit you with my pitcher one. And I went stars on this. I went Max Scherzer, Garrett Cole, or Lancelot. All right. Look, I'm starting Max Scherzer. I would start Max Scherzer over pretty much anybody in the majors except for Jacob deGrom. I think he's the second best pitcher in the league still. I think he's probably the third best pitcher of our generation and might be fourth soon if deGrom can stay healthy. I think that Kershaw and Verlander still hold a little bit over him right now, in my head at least. So I'll start Scherzer. And I know a lot of people are going to call me crazy for this, but I've always been a huge fan of Lance Lynn. He doesn't overpower anybody, but he is so good. And I'm actually going to bench Lance Lynn and I'm cutting Garrett Cole. I might call it Yankee bias because I just, you know, naturally don't like the Yankees as an Orioles fan. But I just think that Lance Lynn is so good and so underrated. And I just want... I, I, I want the consistency that it brings. Because look, Garrett Cole, after the crackdown on banned substances, just kind of fell apart. Obviously, he found it again, but I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to cut him. And I'm also gonna cut that personality because he was starting to blame not being able to use spider tack for his failings, and that's just not a good look. And now my last one is also a few stars. My infield. Nolan Arenado, Anthony Rendon, and Jose Altuve. This one's probably the easiest one for me. It's Arenado, Altuve, Rendon. Uh, Arenado, one of the best defensive players in the league at one of uh, the hardest positions, and he has a big bat. Um, he was the easy start for me. Altuve, I know he's gotten involved with the cheating scandal in Houston, but he's still been a good player. He, second base is hard position to find good players at. So I got to, I got to bench him, but Rendon's been either hurt or terrible the last few years in Anaheim and huge contract that goes along with that. So and for, for my final, I'm also going to do infield, but it's pretty much all young prospects. We're going to go with Cabrian Hayes, Jonathan India, and Wander Franco. So we gave Jonathan India his shout out earlier. He won Rookie of the Year for good reason. So I'm gonna start him. I'm starting Jonathan India over Wander Franco. I've seen I we've seen Wander play what 60 games in the MLB. I know that there's a lot of hype surrounding him, and I'm I understand it. He's a fantastic ball player but I've seen a full season from India and what he did was just incredible. Like you said, it's tough to find great players to play second base and Jonathan India can do that. So I'm going to have to start him. I'm going to see you're putting me in a tough position here because I do love Cabrian Hayes. He's so good and he's so fun to watch. We mentioned it on the new year's, the new year's resolutions episode that the pirates need to turn him into a star because it should be easy and that will help them mightily. But Wander Franco is really good. So I will have to cut Cabrian in order to bench 
Wander Franco. The guy did get a lot of money, so I almost going to cut him just to save some money, but he's just so good. And I'm going to, that's just how I have to do it. Love you, Cabrian. Please don't hate me <laughs> if you're listening. I know you're not, but you know, and that's, that, that's just the way the, the cards have been shuffled really. Now that is the rest of our start bench cuts. And we get on to our favorite ending segment the Mount Rushmore's, and these ones are actually quite interesting. It, I think that one of them was one of them was just really difficult because the team has so much history, and that's the Braves. They are so they're filled to the brim with fantastic talent throughout the entirety of their history. So it was really tough to pick. Now I think that a natural number one pick to put on the Rushmore is Hank Aaron. Need I, need I say more? No. Will I? Yes. Look, Hall of Fame, MVP only once in his career, a 1957's World Series champion, and in his 23 years in the league, according to baseball reference, he has 25 All-Stars, which has to be wrong. But I mean, it's Hank Aaron, so I wouldn't be surprised if he had more all-star games in years in the league. But look, between 1955 and 1973, he finished in the top 11, top 14, I think, in MVP voting all of those years. He only won once, but he finished third several times. He finished fourth of once he finished in fifth once he finished in sixth and seventh and eighth he pretty much finished everywhere except winning it and an underrated aspect of his game is fielding he has a few gold gloves to his name as well one of the greatest players of in baseball's history if you take away his home runs he still has over 3,000 hits in his career at a career batting average of 305, 755 home runs, and for the most part did play for the Braves. One of the greatest players, 310 average with the Braves in his career with a OPS plus of 159. All-time leader in RBIs and total bases. Not enough can be said about how good he was, so naturally he's got to be on the Mount Rushmore for the Braves. Yeah, and obviously I had him on mine. He's the Braves' all-time leader in slugging, OBP, games played, played appearances, at-bats, runs scored, hits, total bases, doubles, homers, RBI, singles, runs created, extra base hits. The list goes on and on. He spent 21 years in Atlanta, and he destroyed baseballs all 21 years. Yeah, and so the second name on my list is second to him in most of those categories that you just mentioned, and that's Chipper Jones. He is second in hits, runs scored, plate appearances, at-bats. He's fourth all-time in slugging percentage, second in on-base percentage. His OPS is second all-time, games played second all-time. He's third all-time in home runs for them. He's second in doubles, second in total bases, number obviously retired that number 10 and chipper one of the best switch hitters in history up there with eddie murray for sure an mvp a hall of fame eight all-star games the 95 world series title 
two silver sluggers only in his career, which is a little surprising to me, a batting title under his belt. And look, even in his last year at the age of 40, he played 112 games and batted 287, played all 19 years of his career with the Braves. So naturally he's got to be there for me. Yeah. Chipper Jones is actually my favorite player growing up. I had family in Atlanta and I was always a big Braves fan as a kid. And he was always the best player on all those teams. Um, but yeah, like you said, 19 years on Atlanta and he was drafted first overall in the draft in 1990 by the Braves. So he was a lifelong Brave through the minors and majors. He had 468 career homers, 2,700 hits, 303 batting average as a switch hitter with them. And he had 150 stolen bases. He wasn't no slow third baseman either. He definitely deserves to be on this Mount Rushmore. Yeah, and speaking of deserving, I got an oldie for this last for this second to last one who definitely deserves to be here. One of the best lefty pitchers of all time, in my opinion, and that's Warren Spahn. Again, Hall of Famer like everybody else that's going to be here. Three ERA titles in his career, a Cy Young. Of course, again, it's a little weird that he only has one, a 1957 World Series title and 17 All-Star games in his career. He played 20 out of his 21 years for the Braves organization. They weren't actually in Atlanta for any of that time. They were in Milwaukee and Boston, but not enough can be said about how good Spawn was. He led the league in ERA three times, like I said, led the league in complete games, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times, pitched over 300 innings several times in his career one of the greatest players, one of the greatest pitchers in MLB history. So naturally he's got to be on my Mount Rushmore. Warren Spawn also on my Mount Rushmore. Um, Braves all-time leader in wins, innings pitched, and batters faced. Shows a lot about how tough he was as a pitcher. Um, like Cy Young winner, like you said, 17-time All-Star, 20 years with the Braves, and very deserving to be on this Mount Rushmore. And a career whip with the Braves organization of 1.18, which is fantastic over 20 years with an organization. Now, my last name on my Mount Rushmore is a little bit of an odd one. And it's because I have a bit of a, uh, a love for the managerial spot. Now, if you look at the Braves all time, there is one thing that stands out, and that is the greatest manager, maybe of all time, definitely in Braves history, who was the manager for 25 years in Atlanta. And that's the Hall of Famer and four-time manager of the year, five-time NL pennant winner, and one-time World Series winner, Bobby Cox, is the last name I had to put him on my Rushmore. I know with the Orioles one, I put the Earl Weaver. And so here I did something really similar. I know there's other names that are definitely deserving of being in this conversation, but I think that a manager that was 25 years with one team and had a winning percentage with that team that was so high with the Braves, he had a winning percentage of 557 with 2,100 wins in his career. Bobby Cox is my last guy that I'm going to put on my Rushmore. Bobby Cox was also the last guy I had on my Mount Rushmore. First manager I have put, um, Hall of Fame manager, won a World Series in 95, five NL pennants, three-time manager of the year. He had six 100-win seasons. 
he actually has his number retired by the Braves organization. And like, as we said, one of the best managers of all time. And now it gets a little tough here because there are, there are two very noticeable names that we haven't mentioned yet. And so for my honorable mention, I put this up to the last minute. I had to go with my gut as we sat down to record to decide who my honorable mention was going to be. So I'm going to give a quick shout out to the guy I didn't choose. And that's Eddie Matthews. One of the greatest power hitters of all time. He's second all time in Braves home runs and no shot against him because, oh my gosh, was he so good. But my, my, my honorable mention for this Braves Mount Rushmore is the man, the myth, the legend, the mad dog, the professor, Greg Maddox. Look, Hall of Famer, like everybody else on the, on this Rushmore, four Cy Youngs in his career, 1995 World Series, of course, four ERA titles in his career and eight All-Star games. He played the beginning of his career with the Cubs and went back there after his stint with the Braves, but he spent the longest time with the Braves, 11 years of his career. And in that time, he had a 2.63 ERA over 11 years, 21 career shutouts with them. 2,500 innings pitched. He, there's some crazy stat out there. Like he's only gone to a 3-0 count like 200 times in his career. And they, most of them were intentional walks. The guy is a, was a phenomenal pitcher. He's called the professor for a reason. One of the best pitchers of all time. I know my best friend back home, shout out to you, JR, is your favorite pitcher of all time, your favorite player of all time. But something that doesn't go quite as noticed as it should is 18 gold gloves for the professor. Oh, my gosh. One of the greatest fielders of all time, not even just at his position, but ever. Look, and four consecutive Cy Youngs, one with the Cubs, but three with the Braves. You got to put the guy there. And that's why Greg Maddox is my honorable mention. For my honorable mention, I actually bent the rules a little bit, and I have it as the big three between Smoltz, Glavin, and Maddox. I mean, you can't have one without the other in my eyes. Uh, they had to combine six Cy Youngs together. They were the big reason why the Braves won the 95 World Series. I mean, in breaking down a little bit each, Glavin had 17 years in Atlanta, two Cy Youngs, Hall of Famer, World Series MVP, four Silver Sluggers. Maddox, Hall of Famer, three Cy Youngs, consecutive with the Braves, four ERA titles with the Braves, 10 gold gloves with the Braves. And Smoltz, he did it all pitching-wise with the Braves. Not only He spent 20 years there. He won a Cy Young for his starting pitching. He was a Hall of Famer for his starting pitching. pitching. But he was also a reliever of the year, uh, NLCS MVP, a Silver Slugger, and an eight-time All-Star. And I couldn't leave any of those guys off my Mount Rushmore. Look, last week I bent the rules. I put the Brizzo Souvenir Company as my honorable mention for the Cubbies. So I understand putting all three of them. I agree that you can't mention one without the other two. So it makes sense to put them there. And now, Matt, I'll let you take the reins on this next Rushmore, which is for a interesting franchise, the Kansas City Royals. This one I actually had a hard time with because they had a lot of guys that were from – well, a while ago that deserve recognition, but I don't know if they're quite on my Mount Rushmore, but I'll start off right away. And I have George Brett this is my first guy. I mean, he's the all-time leader in war for the Royals. Also for the Royals, he's the all-time leader in at-bats, plate appearances, runs, hits, total bases, doubles, triples, homers, RBIs, walks, and it just goes on and on. Uh, Hall of Famer, won an MVP, 13-time All-Star, 
1985 World Series champion. He has a gold glove and silver sluggers, three silver sluggers exactly to show just how good he was on both sides of the field. Three-time three bang title winner, ALCS and, uh, MVP in 21 years of his career were all spent with Kansas City. And naturally, guess who's the first name that I put down? I didn't even have to look at Baseball Reference or any other statistical website. George Brett, duh, has got to be there. One of the best third basemen to ever play the game. He's definitely up there, probably the best Royal of all time. Pretty undebatably, honestly, got to be on the rush more. Now, the second name I put on there, only spent eight years in Kansas City, and he was a two-time All-Star, but in those two All-Star years, Outside of the studio, sorry, you're sorry. He won two Cy Youngs. He's a gold glove winner, a 3-2 career ERA, 1,600 innings pitched with a 1.1 whip for the Royals, over 1,000 strikeouts, and it's Brett Saberhagen. Okay, I have him on mine, too. I just got to shout out that 1989 season with 23 wins where he had a 2-1-6 ERA and 262 innings pitched. It was a Cy Young year, a gold glove year that was – for him as well and one of the most if not the most underrated pitchers in MLB history won an ERA title in his time and obviously only eight years with the Royals but definitely his most productive he had a he had some good years with the Mets as well but I just have one question and why is he not in the Hall of Fame it really it he should be there look at these numbers it's just impossible I feel like it should be impossible to argue against him. A 1-1-4 career whip and a 3-3-4 career ERA, a war of 58.9, 2,500 innings pitched. Obviously, he wasn't a huge strikeout guy because nobody really was at that time, but definitely deserving of being on the Rushmore and probably the Hall of Fame as well. Yeah, he's one of those guys that's wild to say he's not a Hall of Famer. Now, with my next two... I've gone very recent. Um, the first one I'll say had 14 years in Kansas City, three-time All-Star, part of the 2015 World Series team, eight gold gloves, two platinum gloves, 190 homers, 1,600 hits, 6,400 at-bats, 867 runs, 749 RBIs, a lot of big stats, and it's Alex Gordon. I see him as probably for my – at least for me in my eyes, he is – Outside of George Brett, he is Mr. Royal, for our generation at least. Um, I just remember him being good year in and year out, always seeing the gold glove plays he made in the outfield, and I had to put him on here. Yeah, naturally, we agree. Unlike last week's episode, Alex Gordon also going to be on my Rushmore. One of, one of the guys that will be on the Rushmore, that not totally just for his offensive output, because in his career it wasn't the greatest – but he was just so good in the field. The guy won two platinum gloves for a reason. And when you think of that World Series run, you just think of the way they played. It was all about base running and fielding. And Alex Gordon really epitomized that. He was just really fantastic for them for a long time, just retired recently. And I just obviously put him there because of all of the importance that he had to that team to win that world series. Now my last person on my route, Mount Rushmore, it is a player who still is on the Kansas city Royals. He actually just set the record for most home runs in a season by a catcher with 48. 
He has 200 career homers, a 270 career batting average, 1,161 hits as he continues to add to it. He's the World Series MVP of 2015, four silver sluggers, five gold gloves, once again to show how good he is on both sides of the field. Seven-time All-Star in 10 years, all with Kansas City, and I have Salvador Perez as my last member on my Mount Rushmore. Again, epitomized the importance of defense for that that World Series run that they had. He won the gold glove that year and is one of the most that people value him a lot lower than I think that he, than he deserves. He's been a 270 career hitter in all of his years. He has 656 RBIs so far. He still has some years to grow. He's only 31 right now. And next year he'll turn 32 during the season, but he's just so good and really came out of, came into his own weirdly enough in his age 31 season hitting 48 home runs tied for the league lead this past season. And Salvador Perez has got to be in the conversation. Now he was not on my Rushmore, but he was in fact, my honorable mention. So for my honorable mention, I went with another current player, but not on the Royals currently. He has a Cy Young in all-star appearance and finished fourth in rookie of the year voting Spent seven years in Kansas City and had a career 3.82 ERA, 1,100 innings pitched, and 900 career strikeouts in Kansas City. My honorable mention is Zach Ranke. That's not where I was expecting you to go at all. I didn't know where I expected you to go. I was thinking maybe Locaine, stick with that World Series theme. But Granke is an interesting pick, and I definitely think it's a good one. I don't actually have him on my as my last name on the Rushmore, but gotta love the Granky pick. He was so important to that Royals team for a long time. And he's been a bit of a journeyman since then, but I will always remember him first and foremost as the ace of that Royal staff for a long time. Yeah. He was the sixth overall pick by the Royals in the 2002 draft, which as may know, it means a lot to me when you finish going through the minors with one team. Um, And a lot of people know him for, his anxiety with the Royals too. And just the fact that he pitched so well through all the mental issues he had with the Royals and how at one point he wanted to quit baseball. And it's just amazing to me and a great story and why I had to have him as my honorable mention. Yeah, no, I totally, I love the pick, but as I said, not the last name on my Rushmore. And we know how I'm a bit partial to guys who have their numbers retired. And that's why my last guy on the Rushmore is Frank White. The numbers retired for the Royals. This picture of him on baseball reference has the beautiful baby blue powder blue jerseys on. He was so good. And I don't think people really realize that he was a middle infielder, righty, righty, of course. And he was actually nicknamed Hoover, much like the greatest fielder of all time, Brooks Robinson. Now, naturally, he's not as good as Brooks Robinson, but eight gold gloves, the 85 World Series title, a silver slugger in his time, and an ALCS MVP spent all 18 years of his career with the Royals organization. And never the greatest offensive player, the silver slugger did happen actually quite late in his career in his age 35 season. He hit 272 that year, which was his second best batting average of his career. His highest OBP was that year as well with a 322. A career OPS plus 
of under 100, which is something that is surprising for me to put on a Rushmore. But it's just the defensive acumen that 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 Frank White had. He's the league. He's the career leader in defensive war. He's seventh, I believe, all time in total war for the Royals. And I just got it. I had to put him there. He has his number retired for a reason. As I say on every episode, when I mention a guy whose number is retired, they don't just retire your number because you were decent. And Frank White was just the epitome of consistency in the field, gold gloves throughout most of his career. And that's why I had to put number 20 on my Royals Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I definitely debated him, but I couldn't leave Granky off my honorable mention spot. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think that Granky is definitely a good shout. There are also some guys that I honestly didn't realize had such high career wars with the Royals, like Kevin Appier and Amos Otis, Willie Wilson. Very surprised to see those guys so high up there in war on baseball reference. But I just had to put Frank White. I had to give de- I, I gave defense a shout out with Alex Gordon on the on top of the Rushmore. So I figured I'd keep the theme up with Frank White. For sure. And I think that will wrap it up for this episode. Yeah. And I th- we went through a lot today. So I appreciate all of you all staying with us through it all. I hope you all stay safe. And thankfully, me and Matt have just finished recording this episode. And it's our first one back in person in a while. And it just feels good to be here. Yeah, definitely a lot easier to be in person. So looking forward to continuing that streak. And again, thank you all for listening. Stay safe and see you next week on the Arm Barn.